Each of us has a unique career story to tell. For some, these fly high like rocket launches. For others, they're more like the game of shoots and ladders with advances and setbacks along the way. Either way, we learn countless lessons from these experiences. And that's what we put into the spotlight here at Career Sessions Career Lessons. Join discussions featuring a variety of guests sharing their stories of ups and downs, as well as the secrets of their success and what drives them to continue moving forward. We break down the tools and resources that will help you establish your dream career and realize your professional goals. Here's your host, J.R. Lowry. I'm J.R. Lowry, and this is Career Sessions, Career Lessons, which is brought to you by Pathwise.io. Pathwise is dedicated to helping you live the career you deserve, providing career and leadership coaching, content, courses, and community. Basic membership is free. Visit Pathwise.io and join today. Today, my guest is Antonia Bowring. Antonia is an ICF-certified New York-based executive coach who works primarily with founders, C-suite executives, and leadership teams. One of her areas of expertise is helping neurodiverse leaders create the necessary scaffolding to leverage their gifts and maintain their focus. She is a frequent speaker and a member of the Forbes Coaches Council. The American Reporter named her one of the 10 leadership coaches to watch in 2022. In addition to coaching, Antonia has a strategic facilitation practice that includes facilitating the CEO Forum on the East Coast for UCLA Anderson School of Management, chief core groups, offsite leadership programs, and team cohesion projects. She holds a BA in political science, a Master of Philosophy and Development Economics, and an MBA. Antonia, welcome. Great to have you on the show. Great to be here. Thank you, JR. Yeah, absolutely. Let's start by talking about your new book, Coach Yourself. The title's pretty clear, but tell our audience a little bit more about the premise of the book and its key message. The book, Coach Yourself, the subtitle is Increase Awareness, Change Behavior, and Thrive, and it in two ways. Number one, it's part of a mission to democratize coaching because it's an expensive, not gift, but it's an expensive thing to receive. And a lot of it, if you have good resources, you can coach yourself to a degree. I really like that idea that it's not just a few that get coaching. That was part of the impetus. And secondly, I don't think of this as a book you sit down and read cover to cover. I think of it more as a book you orient yourself to and go, oh, okay, I know what the different sections are. When I hit that bump in the road, this is where I'd look in that book. If you can put these two words together a very friendly reference book, but much more engaging than as you and I may think of what a reference book is. Yeah, I would certainly agree with that. Having read it, you talk about democratizing coaching. I mean, that's really Pathwise, which is what I started a couple of years ago, is really about giving people better access to career guidance, because it is typically the privileged few who get coaching provided by their companies. And some people yeah. will take on getting coaching for themselves, but other people really just can't afford that or want to try a DIY approach. And I was trying to give the balance in that and allowing people to, through a web platform, basically, to give them access to a lot of content and tools and frameworks and more of a tech-centric way than a book, but similar idea. It's important because I think back, wow, I wish I'd had a career coach at certain points in my life. Oh. I floundered around and we all have to move through our own process, yeah. but the pain can be shortened if you have 
the right resources or the right person if it's a coach. I really agree with that. Just to say a couple more things about the book, I was writing quite a bit online for Forbes and Wiley, the publisher, contacted me and said, do you want to write a book? And I said, sure. And they said, "Okay, what do you want to write about? My next book will be about ADHD and leadership. But Hmm. the first book, this one, the reason why I wrote it is I really sat back. I've been executive coaching for 10 years now. And I thought, okay, there are like a dozen frameworks that I use day in, day out. I referred to some of them yesterday. Today, I said to someone who's got a mediation tomorrow, oh, if my book hasn't arrived, I'll send you the PDF of that chapter. I'd go back to them over and over and over again. And these are frameworks that most of my clients are C-suite or C-suite and founders and early stage high growth companies. But these frameworks are as beneficial to someone starting out who may be on the receiving end. You're not the manager yet, but you report to the manager. Oh, this gives you beautiful perspective of seeing things from both sides. And I could have written this book for coaches. It would have looked a bit different. But if I wish as a coach, someone had given me a book when I started and said, okay, you'll find your own sweet spot of what your frameworks are. But here, here are my dozen frameworks, because some of them might work for you. I wish I'd had that gift. I would imagine coaches will pick the book up, but the coach audience is this wide. The general population is much wider. Might as well write the book with the general population in mind. That was what the publisher said. (laughs) I'm glad I agree with Wiley. You cover a number of areas. I wanted to pick a few. Crucial conversations was one of them that I thought would be good to cover. Describe what you mean by crucial conversation and the coin framework that you introduce in the book. I know it comes from the group that wrote the book, Crucial Conversations, but talk a little bit about how you apply it. Everyone has to have challenging conversations. If everything is going smoothly, we don't need to really worry about it that much. But what happens is in conversations where we are triggered or we carrying anxiety or nervousness or the stakes feel very high in the conversation or we feel like we're putting something out there, what often happens is the amygdala gets activated. And all of a sudden you went in and you wanted to talk about this, but then the other person said something and then you're off this way and or you're frozen and you can't think of a thing to say. And that happens all the time or you say the wrong thing or in a critical conversation, I think of it as emotions can run high and the stakes can feel high. We need to be prepared for them. And I find that I have a couple of different communication frameworks, but the coin one is a very simple one, more like a checklist almost. Yeah. And it's obviously basic, but I like to think of it as being in my back pocket and I can go, oh, okay, C-O-I-N. Okay, common purpose, observations, inquiry, next steps. Did I get lost somewhere in there? Oh, this brings me back to the kind of through line of the conversation that I want. That's why I think it's very powerful. Everybody has these conversations. We're probably all on one side or the other of them at different points in our lives. For the people who are delivering the message, what should they do to best prepare? 
I mean, is it literally like writing out how they want the conversation to go practicing it? What else would you recommend? How you prepare, first of all, is we all approach challenging conversations with heart and or backbone. And what I mean by that is heart is the I'm listening, I'm feeling, I've got the empathy. That can also be a perspective that avoids discomfort because you want everybody to feel good. And then there's the backbone. Think of it as your objective, your clarity on what you want to achieve in the conversation. Sometimes the people that jump right in and oh, let's do, 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 that can be off-putting and feel harsh, feel not needing me. What we really want to think about is, number one, what's my default? Because we all have one. Where do I default? And how do I do the work to show up? knowing my default, that I can balance that with the other. Because a successful conversation has both. You have to hold your power. You have to hold yourself in it. But you also have to have that openness of heart to dance with the other person. That's the first part. Who am I? How do I tend to show up? And what's the work I can do to bring that awareness and make sure I'm bringing in the other piece? The other is I am a big believer, particularly if you're less experienced, write it out, write those four things out. Inquiry, the third step of it is always around open-ended questions. Some down, tell me more, elaborate on that. How does that make you feel? What's your opinion of, of how we should proceed? All those kinds of questions. And always Walk in knowing what links us, what's our common purpose, because immediately right. that creates a mini inside group. We're right. friends, not foe. We are linked by some sentiment, some goal, some, hey, JR, I know that we both care about your career here at X. Right away, you just created an in-group. You just right. created, from a neuroscience perspective, a sort of positive relationship in that mini setting. If I'm on the receiving end of these conversations, you talked about the amygdala response. How do I block first impulses and focus on getting as much out of that conversation as possible? Because there is a message that I'm supposed to receive here. You have a responsibility, but I do think the person, let's say, delivering a tough message also has a lot of responsibility to Clearly. deliver the message in a way that's clear transparent, direct, caring, with enough space for processing and with the presence of being there in that conversation. And the responsibility of the person receiving it is to breathe, to take a step to always, this isn't always easy, but try and think of these situations with a learning mindset. It obviously depends like what the conversation is. Did I just get told I'm not getting promoted or is it something about my performance or is it something about my interpersonal whatever? Or is it something beyond my control about the context of our business or sometimes budgets get cut? That has nothing to do with you, but it affects you and your team. I would say two things or three things. Breathe. Always remember that. You want to approach these things with a learning mindset and curiosity. And lastly, 
if you're overwhelmed, if things are coming at you that, hey, I just need to take this in. I just need five minutes to walk down the corridor and get some air, or I just need five minutes. I'll be back. Just give yourself some space. Fine for me. You know, when I'm in those situations, it helps to sort of force myself to think about why is this person telling me this? What are their motivations? Putting yourself in the other person's shoes and also asking a rational question, which triggers the rational part of your brain. It goes with the taking a breath and waiting, maybe waiting a few minutes. And then you can go back with a question, help me understand or give me an example. Just bites the trigger that a lot of people get. I like what you're saying. I recently came across this and I really like this. I'm the manager, right? And I'm telling you as an example, you didn't make partner in our consulting firm. And what this person said was, I prepare the first sentence and the last sentence and everything else is processing time. JR, I'm really pleased we could make the time to see each other today. So you start with something that kind right. of invites. Right. This might not be the conversation you'd want to be having, but it's important we have it. I'm sorry to tell you that you aren't going to be making partner this round. We just don't feel you're ready. And then I want to let that land with you. And I want you to know we have an hour together or 45 minutes, whatever. You can ask questions. We can processes together, but I'm here to dig into whatever aspect of this you want. There was no BS in that. I literally delivered the bad news to you directly. In the second sentence. Yeah. But with respect and care and what I would call compassion. And now I'm giving you my full presence. I'm here and we have 40 minutes to talk about it. But you have to be prepared for that 40 minutes. You know, in terms of being able, because, of you know, in your example, I'm going to want to understand where did I fall short? What feedback did the selection group have? What should I be doing differently? You know, whatever the way you want to phrase it. And you've got to make sure that you've got something to say, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And the last sentence is something future oriented. I know you took notes today, JR. If there's anything you feel was missing, or you want to schedule a follow-up to talk about once you've digested and you want to talk about concrete development opportunities, or let's schedule some time in a week or two. There'll always be something concrete about going forward, but what a gift that is to now it's delivered. Now let's have a conversation. This kind of leads into the next thing I wanted to cover, which is feedback, which you cover in the context of applying some of Kim Scott's work in Radical Candor. How would you describe Radical Candor? That's a funny question, because when I was wrapping up the book, I call it compassionate candor in my book. And I talk about it with that lens. When I wrote to her as I was wrapping up the book, she got back to me very quickly and said, I don't call it Radical Candor anymore. I call it compassionate candor. And she wanted me to footnote that. And I think if she'd written that book three years after she wrote it, she probably would have changed the title. That's the sense I got. Do you like the radical candor more? I felt like what she was trying to hit at with positioning of that book was you got to own the direct message and 
radical just seems like a word that kind of goes with that. I get it. But I also, you can't be a jerk about it, which is where the compassion comes in. It's interesting how the language really does evoke different emotions, isn't it? Yeah. I would say the example I just gave you, JR, was compassionate candor. Yes. Is it radical candor? Yeah, sure. The thing is, we need to deliver as a manager or leader, any way I get feedback, I got to take it, period. There's no discussion if you're my coaching client. Yeah. Period. You, well, you describe are, feedback as an act of love. Yeah. But as a, a leader, you got to take it even if it doesn't feel like love. You just yeah. got to take it any way you get it. But as a leader, it is your responsibility to deliver it in a way that people can hear. You yeah. have to be careful. You have to think about, well, who is this person? How do I do it? It can't just be, well, this is my style and that's how I do it. Yeah. Well, it can be, but that's not evolved. And I do think then there's like this whole debate. Well, is it feedback or feed forward? And I don't really think that's semantics, <laughs> semantics. But if semantics matter to you, let's use them. What do I care what we call it? I did a interview yesterday. It was more like a fireside chat. And the word that she used was, I don't use feedback. She said, I call it input or insights. And yeah, great. Like whatever works for you. But we so much talk about, we need learning mindsets. We need to be curious. We can't grow without insights and inputs. We cannot grow. And yeah. how do we change our cultures and make it safe to give these inputs and insights both ways? I know this is an overused term, but in a place that feels psychologically safe. Well, you need that. You argue on point in the book that's underpinning of a functioning team. It's also the totally. underpinning of a functional bilateral relationship, too. It's the underpinning of everything. And I know I mentioned it in the book. I think one of the best things I ever saw written on team success was Google's Project Aristotle, where they set mm. out with big budgets to figure out, well, what's the secret of a successful team? And there were five things. And the first one was psychological safety. Yes. Be safety to admit errors and share opinions. And then the others were purpose. That was characteristic of a successful team that there was people felt a sense of purpose. Another was that there was clarity on roles and responsibilities. I'm not remembering the other two. Well, it was similar. I mean, that framework that's in the book is similar to Grippy with the psychological safety piece I felt like added to it because the Grippy framework that you also talk about having goals, roles and responsibilities, processes, interpersonal relationships, those things lined up against the work that came out of the Google project as well, I thought. A lot of commonality yeah. between the two. In fact, that grippy framework, like a neglected child, I feel, I feel like it's a pretty old framework, but I love it. I used it this morning with a client who's going into mediation. And I said, you know, I feel like there's strong goal alignment between you and this other person. The mission, the goals are clear. There is total lack of clarity on roles and responsibilities. And yeah. until you are clear, how do you 
deal with the interpersonal dynamics. It's like dealing with interpersonal dynamics while you're stuck in mud. Your feet are in mud and you're surrounded by fog. And then you're supposed to find healthy ways to interact. You can't see each other and you can't move. Sometimes we go right to the interpersonal. And I think it's healthy to take a little bit like what you're saying, take a step back and look at, okay, Bill and Ben are not getting along, but okay, goals, roles and responsibilities, processes and procedures, it waterfalls down. To me, that's the beauty of it, that there's a hierarchy. If you don't have goal alignment, how can you be aligned on anything else, right? If you don't have role alignment, then the processes will be harder to figure out. If you don't have the processes figured out, then you're probably going to have interpersonal issues. Yeah. Yeah. It is very true that you often go to something lower in that waterfall. And really the problem is sort of more foundational. And it's helpful to kind of start at the top and just confirm, do we agree on the goal? Do we understand who's doing what? Do we have a set of processes? Powerful in its simplicity. It's also got a catchy way of remembering it. That one to me was one I had not actually heard before that I thought was oh, was quite useful. The way you talked about it, you sounded so knowledgeable. I thought you knew it. It made so much sense to me immediately yeah. as I deal with a lot of project work in my day job. And we have all sorts of issues that you have to work through. And having a hierarchical way of thinking about it is helpful just to get at where's the real root cause. You talk about feedback and then you differentiate it from performance reviews using an eating analogy. Perhaps you could share that for us. Yeah. In an ideal world, feedback is like a healthy snack. You get it in small bites frequently versus a performance review that is three course meal you get once a year or twice a year. And we're not here today debating performance reviews, that could be an interesting conversation. And I do distinguish between feedback and performance reviews. When someone says, well, I'm going to tell them in their performance review, I'm like, that's not feedback. Feedback should be happening every day. That's the the culture you want, that things get course corrected quickly. You're not turning a tanker. You're jiving a sailboat, jibbing, jiving, I don't know, a sailboat where it's, it's easier to course correct that way. And of course, if things have to escalate, they have to escalate. But what happens, we all know things because we don't like to upset people because it's uncomfortable. Things just get bigger and bigger. And then we explode or person is frustrated or something goes really wrong on a project because we haven't just done those more micro corrections along the way. Yeah. And then it turns into one of those crucial conversations that requires a lot more work to do right. That's right. Maybe if we continue the eating analogy, that would be like binging. Right. Not a good thing necessarily. But you talk also about just the idea of affirming versus constructive feedback. And you talk about a three to one ratio, also very helpful because part of this is if you can get somebody comfortable that you're going to, they're going to hear positive and negative things from you. And if you can try to err on the side of having more positive than negative constructive things that you talk about with them, then you're helping to create this environment of psychological safety. They know that you're not just going to tell them the negative things, that you also are noticing the good things that they're doing. And to me, that's also important to get people to be able to hear your feedback. I don't have to add one word. You just covered it. That's exactly it. That's exactly right. (laughs) You just said it. I want to talk a little bit about neurodiversity. I know that's something that is very top of mind for you. 
we use it to describe people on the autism spectrum, people with ADHD, bipolar disorder, or among other things. You talk at the outset of the book about receiving your own adult ADHD diagnosis. And I'm curious what led you to go down the path of that possibility and talk a little bit about the impact that it had of getting that diagnosis in your adult life. One thing, and thank you for bringing it up. I mean, neurodiverse is a very broad term. And I feel like I really deeply understand ADHD and have studied ADHD coaching. I don't consider myself an ADHD coach, and I can explain Mm. why, but I feel very comfortable talking about it. I do not feel comfortable talking about autism and Asperger's and things like that in any depth because it's different and the nuances do matter. I'm very comfortable saying my dream is that neurodiversity is just another diversity in the workplace that is we don't talk about strengths or weaknesses. We just talk about, oh, this person is neurodiverse. Oh, Antonia, you have ADHD. Okay. What kind of accommodations are going to make this project work better for you? Period. That's it. I think this is very typical. Obviously, I guess we all started hearing it more, but I always associated it with rambunctious boys. And my son got diagnosed with it between middle school and high school. You're talking about ADHD specifically here. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. And I remember just thinking, oh, my God, because I was going to the psychiatrist and the testing and all that. And I remember thinking, oh, that sounds like me. And it took me a couple more years to actually get tested. And I'm so glad I did it. There's something the way I like to describe. It's not an excuse, but it's information. And when you have that information, you have a responsibility to do something with it. For me, it was very freeing in a funny way, allowed me to reframe things from my past and go, oh, yeah, it's not that I'm such a loser socially or whatever. My brain's wired a bit differently. And obviously, I got a late diagnosis and I built up a lot of scaffolding during my life successfully. I was a good student. I got high marks, but I think I worked three times harder than anybody else. Yeah. And describe what you mean by scaffolding. Medication is a scaffolding and Mm. anything that is process system tool that you use to support you achieve your goals in a way. I do really think of it as like the scaffolding when you're building a building. um, And for me, I was a very hard worker, like very, very hard, too hard in a way. Yeah. I also am now in a position that I actually get people to help me with things I'm not good at or don't want to do. It's not right. a good use of my time. I began to understand I am not someone who can learn by reading a book. I need you to show me what are the sort of modalities of learning that best match my style. That's yeah. another piece of scaffolding. And Two others. One, just what are your tricks and strategies for focus? I actually have a bouncy ball that I sit on sometimes so I can have motion. I don't have one now. I was just demonstrating, but I'm sitting in a chair. I chew gum sometimes. Just helps me to, I don't know what, but it does. It helps me. 
But if I had to say one thing, for me, I'm not saying for everyone, the absolutely categorically most important thing I have done to scaffold my ADHD is to exercise, hands down. Tons of research, of course, also on the effect on anxiety and depression and on ADHD. And one way of thinking about ADHD is that you are low in dopamine and Mm. you need to get dopamine hits. You just need more of it. And there are healthy ways to get it and not so healthy ways to get it. There's much more coexistence of addiction with ADHD and a super, of course, as we know now, super healthy way to get dopamine is through exercise. I do it every day, some way or another. I wanted you to describe scaffolding and your own examples are very helpful because it does take different forms, right? It's not just Oh, I've got this process or this system. And you described exercise. You described chewing gum as a form of scaffolding. You know, at the end of the day, it's whatever helps us. And I'm watching the neurodiversity discussion play out in the work world, right? I literally first heard it probably three or four years ago, mentioned in the context of a population that we should be thinking about when we talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion. And, you know, at the end of the day, we all learn differently. We all work differently. We all interact differently. If we all are in tune with how we all do those things, how we each individually do those things, and we can talk about how we do those things, it just gets a lot easier. There's still a lot of stigma in corporate America. There's less stigma, but in startups, early stage, high growth, and Still, a lot of parents don't see it as a failing of their child or a weakness or a debilitating something, and they don't want to see it. Look, attitude change takes time. Obviously, we've made huge strides. And I think there are examples of corporations that have really made great strides. A lot of the tech companies, just statistically, some of the folks on the engineering side and the tech side, there's higher levels, population of neurodiversity, that's kind of brought the issue to the forefront. But it's still something clients don't always want to share. They feel it will be used against them. I think there's, I mean, we make jokes about people being on the spectrum, which isn't the most polite thing to do. When I hear that at work, my response is, look, we're all on the spectrum. It's an everybody thing. It's not just a subset. That's not completely fair either because some people are severely autistic in a way that the vast majority of the population isn't. But it's my way of just trying to get people to understand that we're all neurodiverse to varying degrees. And the more that we can understand each other, the easier it's going to be to work together. I use DISC quite a bit with mm-hmm. workshops. And, and I always sometimes sort of, I don't know, half jokingly say like, well, this is where the DEI work can start. There's diversity in our styles and our personalities, right. and we let's embrace that. My team actually did the DISC framework and talked about it last week. There was a lot of commonality in the group, which I think surprised everybody. Oh, now wait, because- let me think about, did you use the DISC? Yeah. And yeah. I'm thinking you're a CD. You were 
exactly right. I was a CD, a DC actually, but you're close. I know we've got time constraints. I want to make sure we spend a little bit of time talking about your background. What were you doing in the early part of your career before you got into coaching? I had a few different ones. I worked in microfinance internationally, helping entrepreneurs set up businesses and training programs. And I actually also worked in the Canadian Parliament. And then I went back to business school and worked in management consulting. And then I went back to consulting and then leadership positions in some large nonprofits. Right before I started coaching, I opened the office of an organization that helped low-income women start businesses out of California. And nonprofits don't really go bankrupt. That's not the language, but essentially that's what happened. It ran out of money. And we'd been really successful in New York, creating this programming, getting funding, but we didn't control the purse string, so to speak. It went back to California. As things were winding down and I was absolutely exhausted, I brought in some pro bono coaches who worked with some of the clients of the organization. And one of them said to me, what are you going to do now? And I said, I don't know. I really don't know. I'm burned out. I'm whatever. She said, you should take my coaching course. I do a summer intensive and you're natural. And literally, I never looked back. Yeah. It was what I was made to do. And you've been at it now for 10 years. Your coaching philosophy, you describe it a little bit in the book. I think you say it's grounded in positive psychology. Yeah. Can you provide a little bit more on just how you think about working with your coaching clients? The essence of positive psychology is you focus on the strengths. And also that psychology isn't just something for folks that have tremendous challenges that you can bring psychological principles in to relatively well-functioning humans, but help them get from good to great or okay to good. Kind of right. And it's strength-based, not weakness-based. You're not solving a problem, you're creating a solution. That is how I approach it and how I reframe things. And also just helping my clients understand that they have agency that they have options and possibilities. And that can be just so powerful when you're just in reactive mode. You wrote this book. How do you advise people to think about when they should get a coach and when they should read the book and work through it on their own? No one's asked me that question. That's a great question. I would say that there's three ways to use the book. One is if you can't afford coaching. And by the way, there's now some online coaching platforms that are very good if you have less money. And by the way, be a very critical consumer, demanding consumer. There's a huge variety of the quality of coaches. Be demanding. If you don't think the coach is right for you, switch. The book is great for people who can't afford coaching because you can go quite far if you're resilient, if you're determined and you have a lot of just have really embraced a learning mindset. Yeah. Secondly, it's helpful for people who are thinking about going into coaching. Oh, let me get a little more familiar with it. Let me sort of try this on. Let me get engaged before I get married. And then I mentioned this, the book is evergreen in the sense, whether you have a coach or not, 
something's not right on my team. Let me look at that chapter or, oh, my bedtime routine is not helping me. Oh, let me look at the chapter on habit. It can be used that way too. Last question. What's ahead for you other than the idea of writing another book? What's ahead for me is I am going to walk the Camino de Santiago Compostela in April and May in Spain. Nice. Very nice. Yeah. And I know the route I'm going to do, the Primitivo, rainier, but more solitary. I'm going to carry my pack. I'm not going to ship it ahead day to day. And I am slowly going to think about what this book looks like and how to research it. And I guess I'm saying this out loud for the first time. I want to speak more. I want to speak more about what's in the book. I want to speak more to empower people. And I'm particularly interested in how to empower some of the folks joining the workforce that when do you need a coach? When do you need a mentor? How do you get a sponsor? There's a lot in this book and just from my experience that I can't solve all your problems. I can't take the journey for you, but I can give you some tools and strategies and tidbits that might shorten it and make it more of an enjoyable learning journey. Well, we will call it there. Thank you for doing this with me today. My pleasure, JR. My pleasure. Great, thoughtful questions. Thank you. Good conversation. I appreciate your time and enjoyed getting to learn some new frameworks from the book. So thank you for that too. Thank you again for your time and have a good rest of your day. Thank you. You too. I want to thank Antonia for joining me today to cover her new book, Coach Yourself, some of the frameworks that she covers in the book and uses in her own coaching practice, a little bit about ADHD and neurodiversity more broadly, and her own career journey as well. If you're ready to take control of your career, visit pathwise.io. And if you'd like more regular insights, you can become a Pathwise member. It's free. You can also sign up on the website for our newsletter. Follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and TikTok. Thanks and have a great day. Thank you for listening to Career Sessions, Career Lessons. We hope the nuggets of wisdom shared today help guide your path to the successful career of your dreams. This podcast series is part of Pathwise.io, which is here to help you live the career you want. We provide a comprehensive mix of career and professional development events, insights, tools, and exercises backed by a group of leading coaches and other career management experts. If you aspire to something more or just something different in your career, join us at pathwise.io. You can find us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. See you again on the next episode.